Hi, and welcome to this episode of Zero Knowledge. I'm Frederick. I'm Anna. And today we're being joined by Liz Steininger. Uh, do you want to say hi, Liz? Hi. <laughs> uh, Liz is the CEO and managing director of a company here in Berlin called Least Authority. Uh, Least Authority is focused on building an affordable, ethical, usable, and lasting data storage solution. They are looking at free and open source software, intangible cryptography, user-friendly interfaces, and sustainable economic models. Lease Authority is also uh, doing a lot of security audits, um, including uh, blockchain-related security audits. Um, the reason we wanted to have you here today, Liz, was we wanted to do a podcast about open source communities. We wanted to look a little bit maybe into the past of open source communities and then compare them to where blo the blockchain open source community is at, maybe see what uh, could be in the pipeline in terms of tools and support systems and structures. Uh, and, and maybe, yeah, just find out a little bit more about what you think of the blockchain space right now and where you could potentially see it going. So Liz, do you want to just introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah, I joined Least Authority um, just a couple of years ago. I became the CEO and managing director when uh, we moved the company to Berlin. And the company, though, was originally founded in the United States in 2011 by other people. One of the uh, founders is called Zuko. You guys probably have heard of him. He's related to the Zcash project. But before the Zcash project, he founded Least Authority. Yeah, so Least Authority has always had a good, strong mission around uh, open source software and things like privacy for everyone, privacy by design. These are things that are all really important to every single member of the Least Authority team, both past and present. Um, so you yourself, though, uh, you have some experience in open source communities even before joining Least Authority. I what, do. What, have you, what were you doing in that space before? Yeah, so back in the beginning of my career is when I first discovered open source software and I thought it was just a really cool thing. Um, it was just, it followed the ethos of the internet of being open and people sharing information and people collaborating across the world together. And I thought that was really, really interesting. So um, from a very early time in my career, I thought I wanted to do stuff with open source technology. I started becoming a project manager of open source projects and I've worked within the software industry, um, managing open source software development projects, working in within the consulting industry. And I also worked within the federal government, the United States federal government, helping them to do a little bit with open source, but um, also helping mostly within the US government, I was doing um, work on sharing information, disseminating information to the, to the general public about what the government was doing. And then I also worked for the local DC government in Washington DC to help them incorporate open source into what they do. I thought that was a really interesting approach for local governments to use open source because local governments always have a budget issue. And so um, the idea of open source and also the idea of being able to connect to technologists within the local area that um, are passionate about certain things in open source was also very interesting to be a part of. And then I went and joined the Open Technology Fund, which is a U.S. government-funded program uh, within an independent nonprofit called Radio Free Asia. Uh, and they, they fund internet freedom-type projects, which basically is secure communications, uh, also technologies that help people to circumvent censorship and things like that. 
And so at the Open Technology Fund is actually, too, where I met Least Authority and the work that they were doing with security audits of open source projects. But it was really cool to be both on um, the project management side of stuff, to be also on the implementation side of stuff, and to also then fund open source projects. So mm. it's been really interesting over the years. What's distinct about the uh, open source spaces? People are open open-minded to working with others. There's also a, a tone of collaboration where we're better together. And also this collective, this idea of collective ownership too, I think is really interesting. There's a document by Peter Hintjens called the C4 standard. I, I think it's C4 or C3 or something. So, so he has a very popular blog, uh, written a couple of books on like the, um, I think one is the sociopath uh, coder or something, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but but uh, um, another so the C four documents is super interesting and, and it harks back to that um, thing you said of collective ownership. So essentially, it's a it's a guiding document on how to do open source software development, and it says like in very clear terms how code should be accepted or not accepted. So essentially you establish some tests for something. And if you write code that passes that test, whatever, like it can be an automated test or an offline test or whatever. If you write code that passes the test, it must be included in the code base. And if someone has an objection to how you wrote that code or whatever it is, um, you are free to make your own contribution that fixes it. And as long as it passes the test, it must be included. And uh, this is how the ZeroMQ community works. And it's worked out really well for them. Um, so for any of our listeners, I recommend, uh, highly recommend Peter Hinchin's uh, material. It's really interesting to hear how that works because I've, I've definitely seen that working in action on open source projects. So because you've worked with so many of these open source groups do you find that is there a trajectory that they they tend to take like in terms of development like have you seen any kind of patterns repeat in the way that they get built and the way that they develop i think so i mean of course every project is is different in its own way and it, it also depends on what kind of problem they're trying to solve in the world um like what their software is supposed to do there's always some sort of underlying drive that people have like people want to fix the world through their software. I don't think everybody realizes that they're techno activists in their in their open source software development, but they are trying to solve something in the world. But that said, you know, the, those differences aside, um, I think there there is definitely some like trajectory that they follow, and I think you can see parallels to how groups um, self organize too, and how groups need leadership and then how they also coordinate around that and how they function together and they learn as they function over time like certain processes start to develop yeah and they kind of grow a certain way and, and develop a certain way over time so I do think that there are some similarities amongst the projects you can see how they grow you just mentioned this um, leadership in and I'm curious about that what does yeah. leadership look like in open source Oh, well, that's such a good question that's a good way to frame it because it's because it's such a collaborative environment but yet you do need leaders and that's where, it, and that's also where I think like some of these ideas about how you lead come into play. That mm. with open source, you don't really have this like stick or the incentive mechanisms of like money necessarily to make people follow you. So if you have a really good idea about something that you want to build, you can build it, 
and then you just put it out there open source and the rest of the world might completely ignore it or they might love it and come join your movement of you know your software building but yeah you you can't you can't say you have to contribute to my software because I'm your boss and I'm paying you you can't say that you can't say um, you know, I'll fire you if you don't do this. You don't have some of those like normal, normal proprietary software mechanisms of leadership that that exist. And so within the open source community, it's often like you have to make people want to follow you for other reasons. Yeah. And so it's really cool to see leadership come out from those projects and to see even people become like develop as leaders because they're just passionate about something and they and other people are kind of drawn to their passion. It sounds like it's focused. It's it's just more focused on the idea that they're presenting and maybe the way it's being presented. It's been really cool to see people enter into these projects that might not have normally been welcomed into that kind of space if it was proprietary software and to see them grow mm. as people and grow as leaders and how they all kind of collaborate together. To me, open source is like the ultimate meritocracy of ideas. It's like you put something out there and it, it's exactly what you say. Like there's no incentive or disincentive to do any particular thing. So it's really ideas that draw people. And it's, you know, if this is something that a lot of people see value in, then they'll contribute. I mean, it, it's, um, um, it's about how well you can pitch your vision and how valuable your vision would be to other people. Yeah. And, and even, yeah, so it's, I think that's the initial entry, right? And then after that, it's how well can you, how well can you collaborate with others? Like, do you allow others to contribute to your software or do you just, or you just have a like toxic personality where you push them away? So yeah, I I think think that that's like, that's the entry. And then it's cool to see it grow past that. Yeah. Do our leaders in this space, do they still exhibit like, I mean, charisma must still matter yeah but charisma is different online right yeah (laughs) like yeah no i think there's such a thing as like online technical charisma yeah for sure Uh, it's it's definitely a thing i think so um you know history always uh or often repeats itself and um you know i i know in particular projects where where mistakes or um other like or patterns repeat themselves I've seen in, um, like I, I was a web developer for a very long time and I'm seeing certain patterns and things repeat itself in web development. We kind of keep reinventing the same stuff over and over again. And we're now in like iteration number 10 on web frameworks. Um, but I mean, there is a little bit of improvement every time you do reinvent it for some reason. Um, but how, having been in this space, um, I can imagine seeing a new open source community like the blockchain community spawn up. You, I'm sure you can see a lot of stuff being repeated here. Yeah. Sorry, when you when you said about um, seeing, you know, in web development space, you've seen iterations of things. Um, that's also true when it comes to blockchain and distributed storage. I mean, I think the blockchain community has kind of taken the open source mentality and turned it into a marketing thing too and i don't know that everybody who's now doing open source in the blockchain community really has the same fundamental beliefs that some of the like previous open source software projects had interesting i don't know i mean i i don't want to go out there attacking blockchain projects but for some of them it seems like they just say like we're open they do open source to their project because that's just what you do 
not yeah. because that's what you do. That's what you have to do. That's the yeah. right kind of software. They, they, they build open source software, but they, they don't put in the effort it takes to actually make something properly open source and like distributed in terms of contributors. Um, yeah. And um, I mean, it's sort of um, a halfway point, I'd say, where they start as a company that there are employed people to write open source software um, and they probably want open source contributors, but they also have a vision that they need to iterate quickly towards or, or work towards. And so they kind of focus down work the way they would usually work, but the code is open. <laughs> yeah, and it, think... it, it's a different type of project, like you said. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think you, you make a really good distinction there. The difference between writing software and just making it open source versus the, the open source, like ground up, like collaborative type software projects that have come, that have come in the last, like, you know, whatever, a couple decades, <laughs> however long open source has been around. But um, yeah, I think you make a, a good distinction between those two things. And, and I guess that that's a nicer way to say that what we see in a lot of the blockchain projects is exactly what you were describing, where they, they just, they're working, writing software, they just happen to make it open source, because that that sounds good. But it's a little bit different than these, these grassroots projects that we've seen in the past, that um, people, that nobody's actually, no company is funding them uh, solely to just build that for their own purposes, that it's more just like maybe people doing it in their free time or um, or a bunch of companies that realize together that, that they use it. And usually that happens because there's someone within the company that's their sole job that relies on some open source software project. Mm -hmm. And so they connect with their like-minded people across the world and they all and they all get their, you know, bosses to agree to, to fund some of their time on that open source project. But it's just a different kind of um, growth that we see. And I think what's also further, further pushing that within the blockchain space is because of things like ICOs and these initial coin offerings and, and these token sales and stuff that and the venture capital that's behind some of these projects that they basically can afford to just pay people to do what they would do anyway, mm -hmm. uh, when it, what they would do anyway if it was proprietary code. Whereas um, a lot of open source projects, other open source projects in the world, they don't have anybody funding them. And it's just people really doing it because they care to do it. And that's a little bit different kind of barrier to entry. You know, if you're getting yeah. paid to your, do your job or if you're doing it because you really, really care. There's also another aspect of the blockchain space where the companies don't necessarily want to be open source, but they have to be because they're writing security sensitive software. And I mean, a lot of the core philosophy of blockchain is to eliminate trust. And if you have closed source software running the network, then you need to trust the implementers of the software and your the, the whole point of your system has gone away. Uh, but by open sourcing and allowing anyone to audit, you can sort of remove the necessary trust in the code and say that, you know, it's we can trust this network because we can see the code. Um, but it's not anything beyond that. Like it, mm. um, you could solve this by not calling it op open source, but just like code that is available to look at. So for instance, Apple has a couple of projects where they've released the source code, but it's very much not open source. Like yeah. it's a very restrictive license uh, and no one is allowed to do anything but view it. Oh, yeah. 
Okay, so because we have we do security audits, and I've also been on the other side of it where I was hiring security auditors to audit a bunch of open source projects that, um, you know, when I worked at the Open Technology Fund uh, to work with security auditors there, I've seen it's really interesting to talk about, like, trust of code. And we've also, at least Authority, we've also done some, like, user feedback sessions with people where we talk to normal people, not open source passionate people, but normal people about this idea of open source code and how that builds trust. And we got some really interesting reactions to, you know, things on our website where it says like, our, our code is open source, so anyone can audit it. People, some people were like, who, who are these people that are reading this code and oh. figuring out that it's trustworthy? I can't read the code. And we had to explain to them that there's this, you know, this whole thing of third-party auditors. But you know, coming back to the blockchain space, there are blockchain projects who are getting these third-party audits, like mm-hmm. what, what we do as a business. So, um, But there's probably any projects that don't do that too. And so just having open source code that's available for auditing in and of itself doesn't I mean, it does get you some some aspect a little bit further on that on that spectrum of trust, but it doesn't it doesn't really get you all that trust because if the code is out there, but nobody's looking at it for problems, or the right people aren't looking at it for problems too. If there's not different people looking at it from different perspectives for different problems, then it doesn't really matter that it's out there and it's open. It's like what's that saying? Like if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it. Yeah, it's it's just. It's, it's interesting to see that, that, yeah, that just open source people think that because it's open source, it's therefore trustworthy. But there's a few other steps that I think the software industry is missing in there. Um, you know, I've even had plenty of conversations with people about how we should, how like third party audits should be more institutionalized in a sense within the, within the open source and the software industry in general too, that even if we have third-party audits, like who's who's reading those audits and understanding, you know, what were the original flaws and the things that have been resolved and and who's kind of, yeah, who's putting that all together and making it understandable for the normal person that comes along. I think that's a really good point. And open sourcing is like step number one to yes. being able to, to trust the code. <laughs> but there's so much more that needs to come after that. Um, I think a prime example in the blockchain space where IOTA, uh, they've imp- had implemented or have implemented their own hashing algorithm and um, their code is open source and everyone sort of went about their business trusting this because it's open source. And then there was a problem with this hashing algorithm. And uh, the people behind it said that it was uh, they had put in this back door into the thing as an intentional measure as a copyright protection um, to like if someone else copied their code and used it then they could kind of hack them and destroy it I guess I I don't really understand what the argument was to me it's a bad argument either way Um, uh, but that does that's like a prime example of a software project with you know I don't know what their market cap is I think it's in billions of dollars (laughs) Uh, and millions of users or hundreds of thousands of users and um, still had massive like security issues. Mm. Um, so despite it being open source. Despite it being open source. So I think that's a prime example of, of what you're talking about. So I attended this small conference in Berlin called Underexposed. It was put on by an organization called Simply Secure. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of that 
part of that little conference was to have different speakers. And one of the speakers, um, actually a couple speakers, they spoke about this research that they did. They were The point of the research was to look at the usability of developer resources and what kind of impact that actually has on the security uh, of, the, of the projects in the end. And then for them, they looked at Android app development because that was, it's a pretty big amount of data that you have to look at. There's lots of Android apps there. So they looked and they found that um, certain security vulnerabilities were being repeated within Android apps. And they tried to understand why those were there. And they found that the developer resources that were more usable but but provided less secure answer um, to that question were the ones that were used by developers as opposed to them using the actual, like, Android, um, actual Android documentation, which is less usable, but gives you the right answers in terms of security. Wow. They were using like Stack Overflow copy and pasting code, even though there were like um, warnings on that code huh. that this code isn't secure, so you shouldn't use it. Uh, so, I mean, although the point of that research was to show that the usability of developer tools matters in terms of security just as much as the end user understanding, and the end user needs to find tools usable also. They need to understand security, but so do developers. So and yeah, this is really interesting research. In a way, this is this UX in with like UX within open source. It's not just the UX that the cut the final customer sees, the end user sees, but also so the developer sees. Yep, the developers are people too, and they need to have <laughs> user friendly tools too. I mean, in this case though, you could also like just have groups weed out and get rid of that type of documentation that's sort of faulty or correct it. Like it seems like it's sitting there because it's like unchecked. Well, yeah, the, the problem is that stack, the, these are two different resources, and yeah. one is like really usable, and the other one is not. Yeah. And so the, the official Android documentation, it has all the right answers in it, and they're putting it out there, but the people who are creating the Android documentation are the ones who should actually just be like making it easier to read. Uh, for the developers and putting code snippets in there for because that's yeah. I mean because they copy they're copy and pasting code from Stack Overflow instead, huh. and because it's easier and so I think you have to put yourself in the shoes of the person who's doing that job and this is not just true for end users it's everybody along the path of the software development lifecycle to put their, yourself in their shoes and make sure that you're making their job easier, especially in terms of making it more secure there's a lot of steps that need to happen in the process of building trust um, in our systems that is beyond just the open sourcing the code. Like, like you said, Frederick, that that's kind of step one. And um, I mentioned like institutionalizing things, which sounds really scary to an open mm-hmm. source community to use such a word, <laughs> but it's just that we, I guess it should maybe a better word is to say to build an ecosystem around what it means to trust within the open source space that that, that be, what happens beyond that step. So yeah, the code is open sourced. And so then, you know, it's available for millions of people to look at, but is anybody looking at it? Mm -hmm. Who's looking at it? From what perspective are they looking at it? And then when they find things, what do they do? Who do they share it with? The ethical thing about like finding security vulnerabilities is that you should disclose it to the project team first and let them fix it and then disclose it to the public about what had happened. But um, I don't always even see that whole workflow happening Anyway. I think I think that's something that a lot of people miss when they talk about code audits is um, they say like oh this code has been audited it's all good or they like find they find out that there's been a bug somewhere and say why didn't you audit it or or someone tries to come with a defense of why it's audited but 
the audit is one checkpoint in time and it's valuable, it's super valuable, but it's still just that one checkpoint. You can't audit something today and then you have a bug three years later and say, well, it was audited because it doesn't matter anymore. The code has changed so much. Um, like audits need to be regular. It needs to, like you're saying, it's a living thing. So just saying that, you know, something has been audited once is not enough either. Um, it, it's a process. I feel like you started to mention this, but like, what can you, do you have any experiences from like other open source communities, maybe more mature, more developed ones where they did create some sort of system of audits or systems of security checks, like that they actually, that the community got on board with? Um, I don't, I don't have anything to specifically call out, but there's definitely, you can definitely see in some of these bigger, um, bigger open source projects that have been around for longer and that have uh, like large communities, lots of software um, pieces changing. Uh, you can see that they've developed some way mechanisms of handling this kind of problem. But I think that the secure the the software industry as a whole has a problem with this. <laughs> oh, wow. So I think that we can come up with some examples of how communities like manage the, the like how they can cope with this problem as best as they can. But I just I do think it's a bigger problem within the software industry. Huh. And um, I think it like sometimes it helps for me to think a little bit about you know other other industries in this world and try to think how did they solve this problem? Like how did because we don't. We have a lot of new problems with technology that the world hasn't had before, but we can look and see, like we can look and see how other people have dealt with this. So, like, like bridges. Um, I'm not an expert on building bridges, but uh, there's all kinds of processes in place around yeah, building a bridge. Totally. And or a spaceship. Yeah, yeah. Or a uh -huh. spaceship is good too. Yeah, you don't go launching a rocket that hasn't gone through certain tests and stuff. And maybe rockets change, but they change in a different way over time but it's just it's good to look at the other industries and see that there's entire ecosystems to support um to support support safety and i kind of think security and is is you could look at it in that way of safety too for people yeah it's for like um i mean that it's a common saying of like security is a process and i think that is very true um but um, it, it's not to say that there haven't been attempts at at establishing these processes as standards. I mean, there's ISO standards. I worked at a company where we had to be PCI compliant. And um, just the if you're a level three PCI compliant, I can't remember exactly how much. If you process over 20,000 bucks a month, I think it is, you have to um, meet that limit. And um, when you're at that level, um, there's a bunch of stuff like you have to do automated security testing quarterly. Um, you have to do a manual audit yearly. Um, and there's uh, this questionnaire with about 250 questions that you need to check off. The problem is, though, that most of these questions are security theater. They don't actually mean anything. Mm -hmm. And it's just something that you kind of check off and you say, yeah, I thought about this or like and it's super vague things it's like do you have backups yes i have backups cool have you tested <laughs> that the backups actually work no and and that's not in part of this questionnaire mm. um so it's still like it, it goes to some extent but it the problem is that the security industry in itself is constantly changing as well so trying to establish like an iso standard that that needs to be you know set for the next 10 years is 
uh, kind of too hard because we find new tools and find new methods mm-hmm. uh, before you know making that standard obsolete before it can really be implemented so i think um like coming back to blockchain a little bit what i really believe in is making sure that protocols are secure and i think um then a key piece of making sure that there are implementations of this protocol that make it you know trustworthy is that there are multiple implementations of this protocol so parity is um you know number two um implementation of the ethereum protocol but there's you know the python c java whatever else implementation of the protocol and as long as multiple of these implementations are in use then the protocol is byzantine fault tolerance by design so like it doesn't matter if there's a security issue with one implementation the other implementations will sort of catch the the network and Mm. So how do we get secure protocols? Isn't that the question then? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> should we rely on the fact that it's, I mean, and maybe we should, but is it cool to rely on the fact that it's, you know, that there's different, that there's a multitude of implementations and therefore like some, most of them won't fail? Or should we aim to have them all functioning? I know we can't say perfectly, but uh, at we a level. obviously aim to towards of, uh, of having that, <laughs> but um the, I think the important thing is that it doesn't, you know, break the world if one of them mm-hmm. fails. And uh, like, that's just a general sense of building fault tolerant systems that you can do that closed source. You can do that in other types of projects as well. Mm-hmm. Blockchain is particularly amenable to this because the protocol is like what's stores value. But I think to your point of like, how do we make these secure, uh, these protocols secure, um, uh, like formal verification and everything like that is something that's brought up very often as like the lifesaver but in reality you know it's not that good for common implementations like if we we our code base i think is 150,000 lines of rust and if we did formal verification and all of it we'd be done in 15 years (laughs) Uh, and so like it's it's um implementing any sort of sane formal verification process that works like to any degree um, on the implementation side is really hard but doing on the protocol side however is actually much easier because the protocol is small Mm -hmm. Um, so we can formally verify the protocol reasonably easily Um, but then yeah we just need to make sure that the spec of the formal verification is correct (laughs) when you look at that leadership idea in the open source space, are there other roles that are actually emerging or that need to emerge of groups, organizations which within the space that actually just take this on? Does that already exist? Um, you mean take on the the role of auditing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are there are third party companies <laughs> that do the that do security audits, um, but those have to be usually initiated by the by the actual, by the company who's or the organization or the project itself. That wants to be audited. Yeah, you're getting at that there are some really interesting problems, and that some of these old techniques that work with proprietary code centralized companies paying for it. Um, that those those solutions don't translate well in this space. Yeah, and so I think we do have to come up with other ways. It made me start thinking about incentives and what are the incentives to have something, and then also it makes me think about communication too. Again, like coming back to if it's decentralized. 
and there's not a one organization that you can look to for trust, um, that makes it really difficult for users. Because in the old, if you look at proprietary centralized type of company structure, they can look at that company and they can say, I trust that company, or I have like, if, if that company doesn't do trustworthy things, I have... You have one organization to point at. Exactly. Say, like, that's their reputation. Yeah. And if you don't have that in a you know decentralized blockchain project, or uh, then what do you do? Uh, who, do you, who do you go to to complain if something goes wrong? Sometimes I think about um, that there could be these like, you know, of course, bug bounties and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And people have been using that type of thing, um, you know, financial incentivization to say, like, we'll put up this much for vulnerabilities. But I think that also works for software development, too. Or projects can use um, anything that's like that works within it. So like the if they're tokens, the tokens might not translate to exact monetary value. It's a little bit different, but there can be other incentive structures. And I think that that's something that we should consider when we're going into the like mechanism design. Individuals who participate in bug bounty activity when they when they're looking for these bugs it's they're not necessarily security companies that do audits they're individuals who are looking to find the vulnerability and this is what i was kind of speaking of with this the new roles that could potentially be they are developing like the role of just doing those type of activities um, and then finding out who are those people like are there experts emerging within that space as well how like how it works for us like a com- we're a company is really just a group of individuals right so <laughs> we're just a group of individuals that care about this stuff and so those people do exist and they are out there working but um, I think that and I think maybe some of them work well under the bug bounty programs but I'm not sure that those are functioning as well as they should be yet I think uh, that we've got a lot of work especially when it comes to the blockchain space and how we do bounty especially like bug bounty programs I think the old the old model that or the, I should say the current model of that stuff, it kind of works, but it kind of doesn't work. Mm. Um, so I, I think that we need to be a little bit more creative in how we structure those programs. And because and, there's a bit of a, one problem that I see is that there's a bit of a, a matching problem. There's just so much stuff happening in the blockchain community. Mm. Um, so many different blockchain projects popping up like every day. And and each and even the ones that are have existed, like they're changing, they're growing so rapidly, and they're they're coming across new problems, and um, they're just adapting to like new things, new mechanism things are happening. Just lots of stuff is changing so fast that the people who are skilled to look for those problems or want to become skilled to find the the projects that need the help, there's no there's no good way for them to do that. And that's where I think that the current the current offerings for the current approach to bug bounties is broken and that it kind of it kind of matches those people but it kind of doesn't and then also i think that the like there's some other things broken about like the financial incentives and the long-term interests and then also coming back to communicating to users that stuff too community in this that we all need to be talking about this problem a little bit more and and i think that that really does need to start with the projects the key problem to me with bug bounties is, is like around communication so it seems like the idea started with just we'll give some money if someone finds a bug. And then it has evolved over time to be like some security researchers actually subsist on bug bounties. They make it their job to go around and try to find issues and report them. But there's a very key incentive that's wrong with it. Uh, and it's if you search for a bug and spend a day doing that and don't find anything, you don't get paid. And there's like, so essentially, like the more secure a piece of software is, 
the less incentive there is to look wow. at it. Because it's winner takes all. Yeah. Well, there's yeah, there's also that too. That there's also problems and how it functions in that way too. Because you could you could look and you could find some questionable things, and you maybe and you maybe like this is where it disincentivizes collaboration. That if you share that yeah. that the, the work that you've done with somebody else, and but it is winner takes all. So if somebody else comes along and finds the actual bug, but they used your mm-hmm. input, you don't split that. And, and yeah. this is very backwards for the open source community because we're supposed to be like incentivized to be open and sharing. And here on these, like we're not incentivizing it correctly. And that's where I think that the current model is like, it's just, it just doesn't work for open source projects the way that we need it to. And that's a problem. I mean, generally speaking, we should be raising the bar of educating everybody who's a software developer to be more attuned to the security issues that they need to be for that particular project. But if if there's not incentive for you to go in and spend some time unless you're sure you're going to find the problem and there's only incentive for the very for the very experienced people to get that money then you're not really growing people to that level and again that's against the the whole belief system of the open source world that I, I mean earlier we talked about what was so beautiful about it is that you don't need to have that degree you don't need to have there's this checkpoints of like the formal world don't apply in open source projects. If you're passionate and you have some skill, you can come do it. You don't need to have the right background or the right resume or degree. You just go in there and you do it and you get rewarded for that in some way. And you don't get that when you do these bug bounty things. And so that's where it's a bit broken. And so I'm not sure that even that's the right answer is to say like bug bounties need to be fixed. Maybe we need to do something completely different. We need to like really analyze that contribution to the project and that pipeline, that growth for people. I think bug bounties have a place, but they're, yeah, the incentives are wrong. I think the communication is strange because it's, you know, you get reward. I don't know. It's very like haphazard and ad hoc in how you, how we talk about bug bounties as a thing. It's not, it's not intended uh, incentive wise or communication wise to be something that a security researcher can live off. And um, having been uh, interested in in joining the InfoSec world myself, like I I remember a couple of years ago, I started digging into it and I I was thinking, yeah, like it would be super cool work on cryptography, like uh, security research stuff. And you kind of get into the space more and more and you kind of find out that, you know, most money is made fixing windows zero day (laughs) issues and just like this this weird kind of enterprise corporate space where you're not really working on research so much as patching software that you know it's a weird kind of mix there where you want to work on something cool but that's not actually where the money is yeah, I think that this is exactly where we need to be raising the bar on all this across the board because this is where you know, these people who want to like dabble and try to understand security issues, that the jobs are boring and repetitive because we keep making the same old mistakes on our software. And so that's where I think if we just we raise the bar on how we 
and you know you, what's that what's that baseline for security issues to begin with and and then that also is hand in hand with generally educating people to think more about security of software as they build software and that combined with then changing the how we view the reward structure the incentive structure around finding vulnerabilities is also important too have have either of you guys seen anything oh, this is going to be maybe a bit odd but like almost like patreon for finding bugs or Patreon, like some sort of like mechanism for people to be paid to have contributors contribute like quite regularly to them um, and then are maybe rewarded more on the, the amount of work or the, the maybe not always solving the problem 100%, but the contributions that they make to solving some of these problems. Have you seen anything like that? Yeah, there are programs like that. Okay. I've definitely seen those programs, but I think it's very similar that I haven't seen them have explosive growth. What's so beautiful about these some of these projects is that people, people join because they believe in it somehow. Mm-hmm. They believe that they're going to have some positive impact on the world by their contribution. That's why they'll do it not paid some of the time or that's also what drives them to want to get paid to do that work so how do we how do we drive people first to be interested in solving those problems and then we can figure out how to pay them i had one point that i wanted to bring up which is actually about the like white hat hackers yeah because um how do they fit in do you follow this it's a little bit yeah the same incentive conversation as with bug bounties like the the white hat hackers is the people you want to incentivize somehow that's uh yeah and at this point do we do we incentivize them i don't think we incentivize them correctly i mean I, i think again maybe there maybe some projects are doing really good on the financial incentive on that side but how are they helping those people come to the project you know even to know that their project needs that attention like how are are they community how are they reaching out to them how are they making it easy to onboard them how are they like bringing them on as part of the team Um, I actually think I mean as a side note this kind of this kind of conversation applies to a lot of other skills and that are necessary to make open source projects successful like design and usability and communication and stuff so those are all just to, to throw that in there that security is not the only problem that open source projects have when it comes to growth over time and, and becoming um, better known to the world. But I, I think the projects that we see most successful are ones that are able to make it a welcoming community to people of all kinds of like contributable skills. Mm. So I think that, yeah, that would just be my thing about whether it's like white hat hackers or designers or communicators or whatever documenters that that the more an open source project in its community makes it welcoming and easy for people to join on and contribute the better and then and then we can ask and then once they're joining and you can ask them how do you want to be financially incentivized like how would you like to work why aren't you working in this space maybe that could be the question i mean that's what i ask people like what do you what do you really want to do do what do you love to do and if you could get paid to do that how would it look and then that's how you figure out the right way to deal with it. But I love finding homes for, for contributors, open source contributors. I love trying to solve that problem of how do we how do we switch this from something that they have the privilege of being able to do maybe in their free time and give them the privilege of being able to earn a living for it. Um, yeah, I think cool. we just ask them how, how they want to work, how they want to make a living on this, and then we find a way to do it. 
Well, Liz, thanks so much for talking to us about all of this. I think we got, we covered some really good ground. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.